0: Book of Matthew, chapter number twenty, uh, chapter number twenty-seven. I'm going to get on the right notes. If I'm not careful, I'm going to preach last week's message again. All right. Some of you who weren't able to be here say, "Okay, that's fine with me," and then the rest of you would say, "Wait a second, this sounds all too familiar." Um, but as we jump into chapter number twenty-seven, uh, we're coming to a place—a really interesting contrast. What's been happening? We've been for the last several weeks. We've been traveling through the last week of Jesus' life. Next week is traditionally what we call Palm Sunday. And this is when um, Jesus would have entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is when crowds would have gathered together and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, this Hebrew word that means save us, save us, save us, uh, as they throw their coats, as they throw these branches lining the streets, paving the streets. Think of it as a first century rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. And as all of this is taking place, um, this begins what was often called the Passion Week, Now, what's difficult as a preacher of the gospel, it's difficult to come together and to say, hey, let's take a moment and let's study all of this stuff that happens beginning on Palm Sunday. And so this year, I have so enjoyed being able to kind of spread this out, church, as we've walked together moment by moment through Matthew's recordings of Jesus last week. And so now, as we enter into this time, uh, last week and even last two weeks, we've been in the 24 hours before Jesus' crucifixion. Last week, we examined how this, how Judas betrayed Jesus in chapter number 26. And how he came and how for 30 pieces of silver, this one man who had been a follower of Jesus has now turned him over to the authorities and the religious leaders. And then not only that, we see how Jesus is taken. We see how those who said that they would never abandon him flee for their lives, run away Just moments after these bold claims, and even Peter, the man who we read uh, from in Acts chapter 2 just moments ago, he says these things like, I would never betray you. All of these cowards, they might leave you, but I would never do that. Just hours before Jesus tells total strangers, I never knew that man. And so we find all of these things that it just feels like in so many ways, the things that Jesus had been trying to accomplish for years are just crumbling down. They're just falling apart. Have you ever been there where maybe you've put all this work into a project? Um, You put all this energy, this time, this effort into whatever cause it may be, whatever goal it may be, and then, oh man, can you just believe it came crumbling down? Or someone came by and knocked it over, or whatever it might be. Here we find what looks to be from the outside a discouraging moment within Jesus' ministry, as those that he has that have followed him for years, that he has poured into for years, lived his day-to-day life with for years, now are nowhere to be found. Verse number 20, and verse number one of chapter 27. The scripture speaks to us of what happens. As the sun begins to rise when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And so the religious leaders now, they found their witnesses, they have begun this process of condemning him, but they don't have the authority, especially on this holy day, to carry out a crucifixion. So they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Pilate here is a man who is a ruler um, through the Roman authority over this area. He's the man that the Romans have said, hey, you come and you lead this. There's another man that we see more in some of the other gospels by the name of Herod, who considers himself to be king of the region, both of them acting with Roman authority. But now what we see is we see that Jesus is being taken and he's being given away, led to Pilate the governor. Now, um, remember, if you will, a few weeks ago, man by the name of Judas. You might be familiar just with that name as a whole. Judas kind of synonymous with traitor, right? Um, you don't meet many kids named Judas, um, even though it's a very common uh, Hebrew name. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, one of the books of the New Testament is Jude. Jude. And it's the same name. It's just been kind of translated a little bit differently, but it's the same name. One's more Hebrew, one's a little bit more Greek, uh, but it's the same name. And so if you meet a Jude, well, that's still the same name, but we often try to drop that S to stop correlating it with this man. But here's the funny thing. Do you know that Judas actually regretted the decision that he made? In the moment he got caught up in and he, he, we don't know exactly why, if he was doing it for money, although we kind of examined the amount of money that he was giving the 30 pieces of silver. And it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a weak bribe, if you will. And so I mean, is there a financial motivation? Was it purely that? Was it a frustration that Jesus isn't doing all the things that he wanted him to do? We don't really understand because the Bible doesn't give us insight here. But what we do see is we see what Judas does after Jesus is taken into custody and then condemned to death. You see, I think Judas didn't realize how far this was going to go. Because in verse three, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And so when this condemnation is brought about, when they say, oh, we're going to kill him. Uh, We don't know what Judas was thinking. If Maybe he just thought there would be a reprimand or imprisonment, or maybe he understood this, but now that it was real, we don't really know. But what we do see is that he immediately changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And watch what he does. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. We see this guilt that overcomes Judas. Not only that, uh, watch how they respond, first of all. They say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. What do they say? Oh, that sounds like your problem. And so Judas, these elders, they want nothing to do. The, the transaction's been made. We're not giving him back to you. What do you, no, this sounds like this is, this is on you. It's your guilt that you have to live with and you have to deal with. And verse 5, watch what Judas does. He throws down the pieces of silver into the temple. He departs and he went and hanged himself. You see, Judas was so overcome by the guilt and the shame of the sins that he had committed against Jesus that now he goes out there and he he sees no future in his life. He sees no hope to the point where he goes out and he takes his own life. This is a tragic time. This is uh, thoughts of, Hopelessness of loss, of irrevocable change that has happened now in Judas's life to the point where he's willing to go out and to, to take his own life. He this this despair that he finds himself in, you see, now he realizes that without Jesus there is no hope. And yet he at his hands he's betrayed the Son of God. So he throws down the silver at the temple. And in fact, reminding us, if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at um, a man named Zechariah, how, how he had taken, he had been paid 30 pieces of silver to act as a shepherd for a period of time. And when he is done with this job, what does he do? He goes to the temple, lobs the coins in and says, I don't want any of this. Foreshadowing the stuff that centuries later would happen in Judas. The chief priests, after all of this has taken place, They gather and they say, what are we going to do with this money? It's not lawful, verse number six, to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And so even here, if you remember Matthew, Matthew is writing to an audience that's primarily Jewish. They're familiar with much of the Old Testament. They've seen the Old Testament play out. They're familiar with these prophecies. They're familiar with the story of Israel. And so Matthew over and over and over again at the very beginning of the book, all throughout his writings, and then again at the end is saying, hey, remember when so-and-so wrote? Hey, remember when this had taken place? Hey, remember when? And he's going back to the Old Testament prophets to tell the people of Israel, Jesus is the Messiah, the King that we have been waiting for over and over and over and over again. And so what we see is we see this prophecy once again of Jeremiah being fulfilled. The foreshadowing of Zechariah coming into to pass here now within Jesus' life and Judas now even affecting Judas, the one who had betrayed him. How incredible, how incredible. And the fact is, is that um, how is the Bible able to do this? Well, the Bible is a miraculous book. The Bible is not a book that came about because some men decided that we needed it. The Bible is a book that's been given. It was inspired, breathed by God himself. And so as we look at the scripture, we look at a scripture that God has given and then preserved for his people to be able to see it. And so even though Jeremiah and Zechariah, they saw some of these things, we don't know exactly how much or what, you know who the true author of the scripture was? None other than the Holy Spirit of God. And so how does, how do they know about these things taking place? Well, because God knows not only uh, what is happening today, but he knows what happened yesterday and he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He's aware of all of these things. And so I want you to understand this. Even as Jesus is being taken, even as he is betrayed, this isn't a surprise to him. God is not caught unaware by the response of the people. Jesus is not, uh, he's not surprised at these things that have taken place. And yet he allows all of this to continue. In fact, watch verse number 11. Jesus stood before the governor. This is Pilate now. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And so these men are coming and they're saying, this guy did this, this guy did that. He behaved this way. He behaved that way. And what does Jesus say in response? He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say a word. Why is that, do you think? Why is Jesus unwilling to get up and to defend himself? Because Jesus understood that he had to die. Jesus understood that he had to die. There was no point in defending himself. There was no reason for him now. Is he innocent? Yes. But he understood the things that were about to happen. Pilate doesn't, though, and so what does Pilate do? Pilate... Said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. What was the condemnation that these elders and chief priests desired for Jesus? What was the penalty for behaving the way that they were accusing him of making himself equal to the Son of God, blaspheming, calling himself the the king of the Jews and being given this title? What was the penalty for all of this? What were the consequences? Death. Death. This chapter begins immediately from the first verse all the way through this theme with death. Happy Easter. Why? Understand this with me, church. The wages of sin is always death. The Bible teaches us this, Romans chapter number 6, this is my uh, paraphrase of, simply says, the wages of sin is death. Not can be, not might be, that is the consequence of our sin. Well, we see it play out in Judas's life, don't we? So plain, so so obvious how, how his sin directly leads to his own demise. But I also want you to consider with me that Jesus' death is also the result of sin. Here's the difference. Jesus' death that he is walking towards is a result not of his own sin because there wasn't any, but the death that Jesus is approaching is a result of your sin and mine. Because the fact is is that our sin deserves death. You say, wow, Nate, that sounds harsh. That sounds cruel. I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I'm sure you are. (laughs) I am sure you are. Others of you I know better. No, 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 I'm I'm sure you're a good person. I'm sure you're moral and upright and do the things you ought to and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, you know what else you are? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. The Bible teaches us so clearly, Romans chapter number three, all have sinned and, and come short of God's glory. There's a mark, there's a threshold, a God's holiness and perfection. You know how you can reach that? Well, on your own, you can't. You can't. Because you and I, were so faithless. Even, even you're trying to do good to earn God's merit and approval, Faithless. In fact, Isaiah would write, the prophet of the Old Testament. He would write. He would say this: um, all of your righteousness. This is what it's like: filthy rags, dirty waste cloths. The good, that's the good stuff. <laughs> that's what it's like. It's like trying to clean yourself from your filth, and then handing over the rag that you just attempted to wipe yourself up with. What? <laughs> That's not righteous. That's not good. That's not, that doesn't get us to where God's holiness and righteousness is. No, we're so separated from this. that It's a gap that you and I cannot cover. We can't get there. Your goodness is never good enough. But that's why Jesus came. Because in the middle of all of this, Jesus, who had never sinned, is now marching towards death. Figure that one out. Jesus, the one who had never committed a a single error, there was no no sin in him, had never once lied, had never once broken any of God's law, never once had a moment of unbelief. And yet, he's going to the cross because you and I deserve to die. The wages of sin, always, 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 Death. It's a universal truth. In the middle of all of this, now as he's been handed over to Pilate, they begin to make these accusations before Pilate and to retell all of the things that had happened. It's fascinating custom comes into play in verse number 15. At the feast, the governor was accustomed, and this is the feast of the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And so every year... We don't know exactly how this began or what this tradition is as a whole. There are some um, historical documents that kind of show us this wasn't an uncommon practice um, throughout this culture, but, but we don't really have any specific details about this instance of it. But each year, what they would do, apparently, is they would take one prisoner and they would release him to the people. And so in the middle of all this, Pilate says, wow, if there's ever one prisoner that I'm okay with being back out on the streets, it's this Jesus guy. Because as he begins to examine him, we're going to see that he doesn't see any evil in him. Why? Because it's not there. And so as he begins to examine him, he says, oh man, this isn't the guy we want. And so what does he do? They had then, verse 16, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas, Barabbas, there's a few different pronunciations. It's a a Hebrew word here again. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. See, this is a really fascinating thing that's happening here now. Because Pilate says, okay, I have an idea. And Pilate begins to attempt to um, get what he believes to be justice. He's trying to convince the people. He's like, This Jesus guy's not that bad. In fact, you know who I have in custody right now? Barabbas. And this says he's a notable prisoner. Um, so this is a guy who, whatever he's guilty of, he made the rounds. People are aware of him. The crowd knew, they knew this guy. Uh, there are a lot of theories and ideas about who Barabbas might have been. And, and if you remember that, Jesus, what's the crime that he's being put on trial for? It's blasphemy, and then they're going to the Romans with the story of he's an insurrectionist because he says he's the king of the Jews, the son of God. He, this is who he says he is. He's blaspheming, and he thinks he's better than Caesar. Well, Barabbas, his name literally translates as son of the father, Um, Some believe that he may have in fact been a true blasphemer who was calling himself the son of God. Others think that maybe he was an insurrectionist and he was coming from a family that had influence and was maybe a teacher in the area. Um, There's a few different theories, but really at the end of the day, what most scholars agree on is this guy is actually guilty of the stuff that Jesus is being accused of. And so as Barabbas is being brought out here, This is a man that many believe to be a true blasphemer. Regardless of that was, if it was the actual crime he was guilty of, we understand that spiritually, he absolutely was guilty of the things that Jesus was about to die for. He was absolutely guilty of the things that Jesus was about to die for. Because we all are. And so no matter which way you slice it, no matter what crimes he actually committed to get him in this position, he's the guilty one. And Jesus is not. And so Pilate comes out and says, Hey, which one do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And so Pilate, I want you to understand this with Pilate. Um, often we look at Pilate and as we study this passage, if you're familiar with it, you heard it year after year. Pilate is a man that we look at and we say, Okay, I don't have a whole lot of respect for this guy, but can I tell you, he's not an idiot. He hears these guys coming, and he looks at Jesus, and he examines him, and he says, this is, this is jealousy. <laughs> you're mad because you're envious. You're, you're upset over petty reasons. This man's not a criminal. You just don't like him. And so he sees through the facade to what's actually going on. And even in the middle of all this, watch what's going on in verse number 19. Besides, while well, he was sitting on the judgment seat, His wife sent word to him. So can you imagine as he's sitting in judgment, uh, maybe a servant comes in with a note or with a message or whatever. He opens this up and it says, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And so we don't know exactly where this is coming from, but we know that his wife gets it right. And so he looks around and he says, oh my goodness, this man is innocent. And then all of a sudden he gets information from his wife and he's saying, what am I supposed to do here? And so he attempts to calm the crowd and give them Barabbas. He says, think clearly, think clearly, which one of these guys you really want out in the streets. What do the chief priests and elders do? They go around to the crowd they persuaded the crowd to ask for who? Barabbas. And to destroy Jesus. The governor. The governor again said to them, so, so this answer comes back. answer comes back. They want Barabbas. And Pilate says, whoa, 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 whoa. Excuse me? <laughs> I, maybe you guys didn't hear me. <laughs> So he asks again, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Understand, this is not an accident. This is not a a case of mistaken identity. This is not something that just fell into place. This was very intentional by these Jewish leaders. And Pilate in the middle of all this says, what, guys, What am I going to do with Jesus who's called Christ? Guys, come on. Come on. If if I let Barabbas go, what do you want me to do with him? What do they say? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So what's happening? What evil had he done? There wasn't any. Even the leaders, even the religious leaders, they didn't come out and they weren't like, oh, you should hear the things that he, know. they said, let him be crucified. We don't care if he's guilty or not. We want to be rid of him. We don't care what's going on. We just want to be done. And the fact is, in our lives so often, so often, when we turn away from following God's authority from our worship of Christ, we turn to other things, the idols that we allow in our lives. If you had to sit down and answer the question, why did you make that decision? You know what the answer is going to be? I wanted to. Then you might be able to come together and fancy weave out some scheme or thing or whatever and say, well, you know, this is the decision that I made. At the end of the day, if we're being honest, you know the reason that we don't follow God? We don't want to. We don't want to. At the end of the day, that's it. We can justify and we can say, well, I was busy or I was tired or I was this or I was that. Great. In that moment, you know why you didn't follow God? You didn't want to. It's called unbelief that's bound up inside of you. Even for us as believers, as we put our saving faith in Jesus Christ and we say he's the only way to salvation and theologically we ascend all these things, great. Listen, The process of placing Jesus on the throne of your life is a lifelong process. Because the fact is, Paul writes and he says this, he says it so well. Um, He tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is a reasonable service, he writes in the book of Romans. You know what the problem is with a living sacrifice? Because most sacrifices are dead. So you you kill this sacrifice, and it goes on the altar, and and it just kind of stays there. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? We still have a will of our own, and we tend to climb back off. It's one day we're sitting in church, and we're like, wow, the Bible's just so clear to me, and oh, man, I need to surrender my life. And then Monday morning comes, and you're like, well, that's done. And we just get back up and go about our lives as if nothing changed. And can i got to tell you this, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you live your life as if nothing has changed, it might be because nothing has. The scripture tells us so clearly, by, your, by their fruits, you're going to know them. So if you live your life as if nothing happened, maybe we should examine ourselves. As we look at this crowd, man, it's so easy for us to condemn this crowd. It's so easy for us to say, "Wow, how dare you do that?" And then we go out and we live our lives in a very similar way. And so they cry out together in verse 23, "Let him be crucified." Verse 24, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I want you to understand what's taking place here. As Pilate begins to try to wash his hands of Jesus, As he tries to ceremoniously declare himself to be free of the guilt of the Son of God, what is he doing? He's abdicating when authority is difficult. The time had come for Pilate to make a decision that was unpopular with the people, but a right decision nonetheless. And what do we find Pilate doing? We say he was unable or unwilling to actually carry through with that, he abdicated his authority. He said, well, if that's what you guys want, you can have it. But even in the middle of this, is Pilate really clean from all of this that's taking place? No, he's complicit with the whole thing. It's his authority that's being lent to this. At the end of the day, when they start going through and checking things off, they're saying, hey, uh, Pilate, you let this guy get crucified. He was the one with authority here. If he had wanted to step in and stop this, he could have. He could have. Now, God knew from the beginning, and we understand all of that, that that he understood this was going to take place just the way that it had, but Pilate here in the middle is just complicit with it. But at least the crowd acknowledged what they were doing. You want to have an ounce of respect for these religious leaders? At least they were honest and said his blood be on us and on our children. At least they knew what was going on. And then watch as we come to verse number 27, as we get right up to the points of the crucifixion. Next week, we continue in this passage in verse number 32, but for now, watch what's happening. The soldiers of the governor, these are Pilate's men, okay? So who are these men reporting to? Not the chief priests, not the elders, not the Jewish people, Pilate. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him. So they, they take away his clothes. And then what? They put a scarlet robe on him. What's a scarlet robe? What is this robe symbolic of? In, in a couple of the passages, a couple, uh understand in early... Um, early Christian writing, that culture didn't have a great like distinction between colors, whereas today maybe like you and your wife fight over what color your kitchen is because you say it's mauve, and she's like, no, it's more of a taupe, and who knows. Didn't happen first century, okay? Um, in fact, the writers, some of them record that it was a scarlet, others record that it was a purple, and the fact is it was probably somewhere in between, and it wasn't as big of a deal in this era, And so this robe is being taken and being placed on Jesus. What are they doing even as they're doing that? This is a robe that belonged to an official. Whether it be a soldier, whether it be someone else, this is a robe that belonged to someone as a symbol of authority. And we understand that as we continue reading verse 29, twisting together a crown of thorns, They put it on his head. You see, the the Roman Caesars, they would wear these crowns of the the leaves. Maybe you've seen these. There'd be these crowns of the leaves. If you picture like the stereotypical Nero or whatever it might be, they would either take those and it would be a wreath of some sorts or maybe it would even be a golden version of these things depending on the occasion. And so they would take these crowns and uh, officials would wear their crowns, the symbol of Roman authority, And instead of one of those, what do they go? They go out and they find thorns that grow native to this region. Um, Thorns, not just small, uh, little thorns um, like you might find on a rose bush or something like that. Um, But these thorns that grow, these types of thistles that grow in this area, um, and these are aggressive thorns. um, Many of them being half inch to a whole inch in length. They're now being wrapped around and they're saying, oh, let's take this. This sounds like a fun idea you have to understand that first century uh, soldiers, um, known in many ways for the sadism that they carry out on their victims, and so taking this crown, they place it on his head, and then they grab, they go out and they grab a a reed, some type of a, a stick of some sort, they put it in his right hand, and what do they do? They begin to kneel before him and mock him, saying, hail, king of the Jews, And as they make this statement, they're not only degrading Jesus, they're actually criticizing all of the Jews as a whole. They're like, yeah, this is the kind of guy that the Jews deserve as a king because they have no respect for the Jewish people either. Um, And so they're taking Jesus and they're mocking him and saying, wow, what a great king this guy is. And then watch what they do. Verse 30, they spit on him. They take the reed and they struck him on the head. And so this is likely um, taking it and taking swats of this crown that's now sitting on top of him. Because if it's not painful enough um, that this object, these thorns, are placed on his head, let's go ahead and let's agitate this a little bit more. And so we have to understand that as this is taking place, it's digging into his head Uh, It's probably not unreasonable to assume that there are even piercings going into his skull. That there are like, literally, this is coming, his body is being broken down, and he's being beaten. In the middle of all of this, other passages um, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, shed some light onto the things that are playing out. At the end of all of this, another Gospel writer records that he barely even looks like a human being when they're finished with him. So you want to know how, how difficult this is? Matthew really truncates this portion of the story. But why? Because Matthew's writing it with a purpose. Matthew, as he's recording these things, he's not trying to be gory and graphic unnecessarily. In fact, his account of this might be the most benign of all the gospel writers. Because his point is not the gore or the even sometimes the pain and the agony that we understand Jesus is walking through. Matthew, as he writes his gospel, he writes his gospel on purpose. Um, all of the gospel authors do. And the purpose is, while pointing Jesus as being the Son of God, the Messiah that has come, um, focus on different facets of Jesus, his character, and his position. If you've been with us for a period of time, you may remember us talking about this over certain passages of Matthew that just jump out a little bit more clearly. But Matthew, as he's writing, is attempting to portray Jesus, I think just beautifully does so, as the king who has come. And now, as he ends this book, as he comes to the climax of his letter, as he begins the final chapters that he has been pushing towards and pushing towards and building up to, we find the king... From the very beginning, Emmanuel, God, who is with us, the one who has been crowned, the wise men had come from his birth and brought these things. He was a child of Abraham. He was a child of David. He was a child of promise throughout Matthew chapter number one. He was born in the city of David for all things, the city of the king. He's coming from this kingly line. And now we find the king is finally crowned. but He's not crowned in a way that any of his followers would have expected. Could you imagine reading this story for the first time? Could you imagine in the first century, as you hear these uh, things stirring about, about Jesus, and and you don't have all the information, so you're curious about who this man is, and and you find, oh, uh, at the library, at this gathering, at this place, there's a copy of of his life as recorded by one of his followers. You begin to read, and you say, wow, this man has come, and he's the king, and uh, where is this king gone? What's going on with this king? And then you come to the end, and you see, oh, the king was crowned, but that's not what I thought was coming. Because at the end of the day, these men are mocking and they are crowning Jesus, but they're not crowning Jesus as the king that's going to sit on the throne and have all power and authority and wisdom. They're crowning Jesus as the rejected king. The king that's worthy of mocking, that's worthy of humiliation, that's worthy of disgust. And so they're saying, Hail to the king! Hail to the king! The king of the Jews! And yet, how are they doing this in the most sarcastic and, and repugnant way possible? as they spit on him, as they take the, the scepter that they've given him out of his hands and they begin to strike him on the head, driving this crown even further. They are coming and they are publicly gathering and mocking. Why? Because these men would rather serve a king of their own making than the king of the universe. They would rather serve Caesar. They would rather serve the kings that they had idolized and idealized. And they stand and they mock And as they're doing so, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, who would possibly want to serve this king? And yet, here we are 2,000 years later, and as a church, as a body of believers, you know what we're saying? We would. We would. Whose king is this? They're asking. Oh, the king of the Jews. Hello, that's my king. That's my king. But understand that as Christians, we serve a king that suffered. He was humiliated, degraded. And then we want comfort. We want the padded chairs and the air conditioning. We want all these things. And man, my life is just ruined without the stuff that makes it more convenient and easier. And yet, who are we called to model ourselves after? It's a suffering savior. It's a savior whose body was broken. He never deserved that. But we all, life is so unfair. Man, I got a couple of my kids that recently learned that phrase. And so, whoever have you taught them that, good night. Help us all. Because the fact is hey, listen, life's fair. Jesus isn't dealing with this. We serve an unfair God in some ways. And the gospel's unfair. Because if it were fair, you know who's paying for my sin? I am. And who's paying for yours? You are. And yet the gospel is so beautiful precisely because it's unfair. Because the one who deserved life came and died, whereas you and I who deserve death, we are now given the opportunity and the privilege to live. So whose king is that? That's my king. Man, that's my king. That's a king we can go to war for. That's a king that we can get up and we can serve. That's a king that, when those hard days come in our life, let's reflect for a moment and say, hey, listen, I serve a king who knows. And not just because he sees all, though he does, but a king who's actually endured it with us. We don't have a high priest or a king that can't be touched with our weaknesses and infirmities. We don't have a king that's just so far removed from us that he doesn't relate to us or understand us or get us. We have a king who came and suffered and died. For us, that now if we place our faith in Him, we can be saved. Not because of works of our own righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. You see, there's no good that we can do that would earn His approval. There's no righteousness that we can go and we can enact. There's no ritual. There is no set of laws that we could go out and we could fulfill. We've already broken them. In condemnation, separation from God, death, hell, that's the consequence. That's where it all leads. And yet, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is a king and he changes everything. He changes everything. This is a common application as we've gone through the book of Matthew. We've talked about this as the theme presents itself. You see kind of Matthew writes in such a way that he brings it to the forefront and then kind of builds back up and then brings it to the forefront again and then kind of builds back up and then brings it to the forefront again. And I'm not sure if it's any more clear. Uh, maybe, you know, in a couple of weeks, maybe we'll see a little bit more clarity. We'll get there. Uh, but man, whose king is this? The question that we need to answer today is simply, what king do you serve? What king do you serve? So often we have these kings of our own making. We build them up on our own. We put them together on our own. You look at these soldiers, even as Jesus, if you, if you would pull one of them aside and say, hey, who's king? What would their answer be? Well, Caesar's king. In fact, many, many in this era um, would worship Caesar as a God, as a deity. Um, There are cities, we'll talk about this more when we study the book of Revelation. It's incredible. There are cities that they would set up these temples to Caesar, a human being, and say, This is a deity. Here is God. But even as they're doing that, you know what they're doing? They're saying it's a God of our own making. We've come together and we have elevated this empire that we have contributed to. This is God. You see, we're not actually that different from that today. Because so often, we just spend our lives looking for, throwing resources at, serving all of these other whims that they come and that they go, these things that are temporal, temporary. We throw it at making that extra dollar, earning that position that we always wanted, this dream job, building the house. Or can I can I kill a sacred cow here? Even the church building, because the fact is, at the end of the day, you know what's going to happen to this world. Everything is going to be taken up. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So everything on this planet, all the physical stuff that you hold so dear, it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. It's got an expiration date. I don't know what that date is, and neither do you, but it exists. You know what's going to be in eternity? You know the thing that you can take with you? The person next to you and the people across the street. Because, in fact, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, brilliant Christian, uh, excellent writer. Um, If you're only familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, go find some C.S. Lewis, because he's just brilliant as he writes. And as he writes, he says this You have never met a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. And the fact is, is that you are going to spend eternity somewhere, and so is everyone you've ever met, everyone you've ever interacted with. They have an eternal destiny, a place that they will be for eternity. And the fact is, is as we serve the King of Kings, this is a King that came not for a temporary kingdom. If you wanted a temporary kingdom, he could have he could have gotten it. Remember what he said to Peter. He says, guys, don't you think that if I, were, uh, if, I, if I were to call down legions of angels, don't you think that they would just show up? If I wanted tens of thousands of soldiers, don't you think they would just show up? Come on. If I didn't want to do this, don't you think I wouldn't be doing this? And yet at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this kingdom he's established is a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom and yet we want to try to uh, assert it or uh, look at temporary things. What's up with that? You know why we do that? Because it's easy. (laughs) Because it's what we see. It's what we can interact with. It's what we can feel and we can perceive. We're just, we're so impulsive sometimes. At the end of the day, as we consider Christ, as we consider this eternal king, as we look at him and as we uh, consider our own lives and the way that we follow after him, we just have to ask this question. What king are we serving? What king are we serving? Man, are you serving the king of... Insert, fill in the blank. The fact is we got a hundred and whatever people here today. we probably got a hundred and something different kings that we're all trying to chase after. You know, maybe more than that, because I think if we all walk out of here and examine our hearts, we're like, oh, well, there's that one, and there's that one, and there's that one. Man. And yet, at the end of the day, we see a king who came, and he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, not the form of a king, and he became obedient to the point of death. That's our king. That's our king. So today, I'm asking you, examine your hearts. What king are you serving? What king are you serving? Is it some expectation that you've put on yourself or that you've borrowed from someone else? Are you serving the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who laid down his life so freely for you and for me?